Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 10 To Find Each Other Again The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue This series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies, welling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds, in which reality and its fiction travel through the tongue to become tales. To Find Each Other Again is the tenth episode that follows a conversation with artist Sylvie Kim. The title of this podcast stems from a comment Sylvie made during our exchange when she refers to the situation of meeting again with people we haven't seen for quite some time. The intense and fragmentary intimacy of many of our relationships is something Sylvie will address again towards the end of our meeting. In her case, this temporary togetherness happens during intense work processes where she collaborates with many other people who also shape her projects. To find each other is a way to find oneself. Being in relationships allows us to perceive that which remains and that which wanders along the way. Sylvie Kim and I would meet on the move. Our first conversation took place walking several kilometers to a lake together with other friends. She would tell me about her passion for running since the pandemic and also how this habit changed her relationship to the environment and to her own body, making her more aware of both. Later, researching Sylvie's projects for our podcast, I would perceive in them a strong interest in life and body consciousness, both social and individual at the same time. As I watched her videos, conversation and ideas would resonate that come up recurrently when talking to others. A certain mythological self-expression of capitalism, the confusion between spirituality and religion, the Western tendency to skepticism, the moral superiority of secular and scientific knowledge, socially scripted feelings. Although we decided not to talk about it, the Trilogy of Regrets is a project by Silby that reminded me once again how hard it is still to talk about feelings in the context of art, or how hidden feelings are in a system that produces us using them. Even when the longing of belief connects us, which is an idea that Silby develops in our conversation and which is very present in her work. Thanks to an extensive portfolio that Sylvie shared with me, I was able to watch most of the videos that are part of her projects. However, the feeling of missing out on a larger physical experience was a constant for me. In her projects, videos are elements that are part of a larger whole, an environment or an aesthetic ecosystem. Several objects, colors, lights, different intensities of space and sound are equally important in providing an experience for the viewer who becomes a temporary inhabitant of a temporary setting. 
There's also a combined time situation where present, past and future happen at the same time, but without any hint of nostalgia forwards or backwards. During our conversation, I shared with Sylvie my doubts when referring to her work, realizing better the hierarchy that exists between artistic media such as video and film. Sylvie, who is aware of this, insists on the qualities and the possibilities of video as a working medium. Although we didn't have time to talk about it, subtitles are an element of significant aesthetic importance. On some occasions, the bilingual text that appears in her videos moves within the image like another character, scrolling along the screen. This conversation with Sylvie Kim took place in July 2022. She was at her home in Berlin, a few kilometers away from mine. Although we now live in different areas, for a while we were neighbors without knowing it. This anecdote produces an added intimacy between us, having explored the same city environments on a regular basis, she by running and I by biking. While we grew up in very different places and cultures, the way Sylvie refers to Berlin as a locus of affection is not foreign to me. Having grown up mainly in Seoul, passing through other places and having come to Germany during her student years, her place of belonging is not a specific place, but a constant situation of feeling in between. Sylvie's words on belongingness remind me again that to feel at home we need certain places, but that we can also feel at home being with certain people. Again, finding each other can be a way for finding oneself. I'm relatively new to running because this is an entirely pandemic result as an experience throughout the pandemic and the modes of isolation and how all these activities were totally restricted and then I decided I have to do something and there's nothing much like as an option so I decided running and also as a woman in her early 40s I noticed that there are new symptoms in my body that I never knew that's gonna happen in my life the symptoms of aging and that's also one big factor why I had to kind of urge myself to start with it. Yeah, getting more in this disciplined form of self-care, trying to desperately to cope up with the <laughs> phenomenon of aging and etc. All came together and then it was a big vogue also in South Korean society among especially younger generation to use this very specific app for training to start to run from the scratch. So you would be like told in your earphone to now start walking for five minutes and then you finally start running for one minute and then two minutes of walking again and then another minute of slow running and then it repeats on like for three, four sets. So to accomplish to run for the whole 30 minutes as a chunk in the end of like eight, we eight weeks of exercise. And I did this, but it took like two months and a half, which was like longer time than it was supposed to be taking because I was doing it on and off, not too regularly, and it was getting colder. Actually started only last October, which is uh, not even an year. And now I run 10 kilometers every week, around twice a week, because I've noticed that also like too often it kind of damages your joints. So you have to have full recovery before you start another round of running. And it's quite an extensive Activity, it's different from 5k to run 10k. It's like going over this maybe more daily routine of running So it's more like an event that you plan in your daily life to be happening as an extended physical activity Doing that more and more I've noticed how I've been neglecting this physical experience that growing up as a South Korean person in that society means it is highly competitive as a child, like 
everyone is very strictly guided towards this very successful elite way of growing up that everyone has to aim for like good university, good jobs, good marriage, this dream picture family and this kind of like very uh, strictly governed society by this idea of quite traditional image of patriarchy I would say and also among students in their young ages it's like very feel oppression that they have to sit and study and get good notes and like somehow perceive your fellow students as your kind of rivals and, and competitors etc so there are always this friendly or like intimate relationship among kids but then you're, you're also very much under pressure so i'm saying all this to explain why not of many korean children are not exercising <laughs> they don't put much value in this hierarchy of competition the physicality it's very highly neglected i have to say instead of like enjoying this one hour per week of your gymnastic exercise class some kids will ditch it or like just sit in the class faking that they were sick or something but then maybe do their other like math homeworks or something you know or like just ditch because they don't think it's necessary so i remember all these juvenile days where i was not interested at all to sweat right it's almost like a taboo and summer is like very hot and humid so nobody likes it to be outside and like do some exercises or like some volleyballs whatsoever and you would do it like to get the notes in the end because every semester end you will be tested okay how many tosses can you do with your volleyball etc so that was my entire life not doing anything much for my body And then like I had this cholesterol issue, <laughs> too much information that I did like every different types of diet, nothing helped. And my dancer friend told me, maybe you should run. So I, I seriously researched the ways how to start with it. And then I came to this app that was super popular among younger generation, especially during the pandemic. So I started doing it. So you basically only need this good pair of shoes with good balance and, you know, like all these techniques behind it. and. It's just you and the environment. You go out, and then I noticed um, I never had this liberational practice for my own self that has only you and your environment. And I live in Berlin since 2005, which makes 17 years by now. So I'm always like living in between towards Asia or like coming back to Europe and always in between. I kind of gave up in my life to have this sense of belonging or like identifying myself to any specific categorization because it's just impossible. Like there I would be perceived, oh, you're just coming in to put another flag and then like get away again while we are all like struggling in our daily issues and you just have your presentation and, and get away again. And while here I'm just like total, total outsider in a way because I look different and I just don't belong here, obviously. In this sense, this feeling of being connected to my physical environment through my breath, through my sounds of steps that I make and this like rhythm that my body creates and this sensation of burden on your different parts of body which is your knees, your legs, your arms, your shoulder and your neck and everything that was something like very wholesome that has no division and all of a sudden I could feel I belong here, you know, like you know, different types of connection. So that was really, really liberating in many senses. And also, especially after this year long struggle to figure out where to put myself as a presence. So that was a life changer. It's a huge game changer. And that's why I decided to put this explanation on my Instagram profile, like be it so not particularly necessarily significant to explain myself, but still I found this other section of my life in this new chapter of different practices apart making art and just doing money jobs, etc. This is like so significant experience. I felt like I could put it here because it's so important for me now. Probably it's gonna change my practice also in a way. Like I could sense it. I haven't made anything like specifically related to this experience but i'm very sure that it's gonna somehow touch my practice in the future in different levels even though i never ran through like professional marathon or whatsoever i researched it a bit it's also highly commercial industry so i made some thoughts about it but i decided to call myself a runner in the end also it's a 
change all the time and every change is new to you it's always the first experience in the life so anything that comes like that would be making you perplex and also somehow like you have to learn how to deal with it and like how to continue with this apparently continues going forward in your life and that's only one direction basically still unless many other things gonna happen to intervene against aging and death but at the same time it's also like very propagated from the side of very neoliberalist development which is also like will be the product for more rich people and maybe you don't have access to it so anyhow that even might become less democratic in a way less equally accessible to do anything against it or like for it whatsoever i'm trying to learn also like how to perceive myself in different ways that I never considered so obviously that could be so decisive to accept yourself or to perceive yourself or to see yourself and so on so probably it's also about learning to deal with changes not even just the matter of aging but everything is unexpected so you have to be somehow get ready for anything and it's a mode of survival and continuation also It was relatively simple and naive decision to come over because I finished my art school in Seoul and then I wanted to study further in video and, and I was considering Germany just because I saw some shows in Seoul as art student and things that I liked came from Germany so I thought maybe Germany. Another factor was that I uh, partially grew up in Italy when I was in elementary school in Venice even and then I had like another 18 months in Milano when I was 15 to 16 and of course you're in your teenage and you have these turbulent years of your life and everything you perceive is somehow you, of not your like and then i thought okay not in a latin european country <laughs> because they talk too much <laughs> or something like that that was my one criteria so i thought okay germany maybe germany i never tried a german cultural environment so i like a lot of german art so maybe germany and then i, I was talking to my professor who in his generation also was one of the first Korean artists who studied in Germany. So he was like, yeah, I think it'll suit you, but then go to a bigger city because I suffered in Düsseldorf or Stuttgart because it was too monotonous. It was a small city, it's a great academies there, but then basically the German art education system is not much different, so maybe you just choose for the city. And then there was Berlin, there was this West Art School and the East Art School, and the West Art School had like shorter, more compressed video course, which I applied for, and then I spent one year as a guest student, and no, half an year as a guest student and then afterwards I entered as a regular student. I finished the school and then just stayed because I also met my partner there since when we've been staying together so in the end it became more like a location of my partner like to come back to so probably it doesn't matter if it's somewhere else if it's Seoul if it's Busan or like Berlin wherever probably I'll go back to where he is currently located so it's more like a locus of affection than a physical location I would say but it's easy to live here in compared to Seoul for example because Seoul is like you cannot afford it anymore the living costs are so escalating and since I left every time I visit it's always like so quickly changing so I don't feel like I can fully anchor myself to there anymore not only about this economical situation but also like as um, acceptance how they perceive me also there have been different moments of refusals but still i find like all these uh, colleagues and friends with open arms who always invite me over and over or like accept me as i arrive but then there are many other sides when i go to seoul it's always this mixed feeling of being back home but at the same time just this awareness that it's been changing parallel as far as I've been developing somewhere else. So it's always readjusting each other to find each other again and to understand better like what's going on there and to share what I've been through and like in the work of maybe making art or like presenting art. There was more or less happy moments, but there were also some uh, hardships of refusals or rejections or whatsoever, like adversary reactions, etc. Because as said, it's a highly competitive society and to continue your activities and practices and occupation, it means you have to be good and you have to be visible and people would really strive to 
continue in a way like to meet the quality that you're requested to so provide, it's very hard to survive in Seoul's art scene, I would say. And there are many things that you see much more clearly when you like, have such a distance, especially in another continent. And it takes so much time to go back and forth. And it's a really physical experience. And then one thing that appeared to me also like more and more apparent when I arrive and go out to Incheon, like to Seoul, and then I see all of a sudden there are so many mountains in this country. And even in the city of Seoul, everywhere you turn around and there's always, always a piece of mountain peak in the picture. It's all over it omnipresent so that's a big visual perception that is so so much different from germany it's like mostly flat so hiking there it means mountain going to the mountains really like kind of tough steep mountains and rocky also at part and here most like going into the forest as we did and going different chapters of fields and, and forests and creeks and lakes and so on, right? It's like swampy landscape here, especially around Berlin. And so there's totally different energy that comes from nature, I would say, that maybe probably also affects people's mood or vitality, maybe, I don't know. To put things simpler, maybe I should start from saying that I'm not a real believer in any sense, neither in a religious way nor in any, I don't know, in any doctrines whatsoever or like some spirituality thoughts. It's never been fully mine. I briefly frequented Protestant church in Korea when I was young. I was just following my mom. My mom is a very, very Christian person. Like she's a Protestant and my sister too, while my father is a total atheist. He's totally anti-Christianism. And I'm something like in the middle probably. And anyway, so in my whole life, I never felt like I could fully be passionate about anything in a real sense to devote myself or like to be fully sinking into something to even to the extent to expose myself in that state or like to advocate this experience to other people. So I was never, never somehow into it. And, but at the same time, I was always fascinated how people can get so deep with something, right? Especially in the sense of belief or any passionate engagement towards something that you cannot own or like reach, but still you want to believe in that. And that always fascinated me, so I was trying to observe these different types of phenomena, not only religious way, but there is also this an older project of mine that was about Korean idol singers and their fans and their love for like these juvenile male figures, etc. Or some events in the past, like recent past, where like these suicide bombers were always repeatedly in, in a certain period of time as like very highly escalating political, geopolitical and also diplomatic conflict factors and also like this factor of just killing oneself with the idea for something that is not about yourself fully but some, for something grander or like spiritual or even like like sacrificing yourself to the extent to kill yourself and to kill others at the same time to exert some types of belief or the system that it advocates for. And all these phenomena, I, it was really hard to grasp what all that was about. So I was doing the researches just to understand better what's happening in this world back then. And so I realized that humankind has been always capable to invent something to stick to, to stabilize themselves because the future is, has been always uncertain. So all these types of predication or prophecies or any legal system or structure or making a society even was all about like wanting to agree on something to continue in a peaceful survival. And that was to facilitate somehow the idea of survival in general, like as a basic ground for anything that developed on top of this agreement for society and I think borrowing I want to 
believe in the desire of wanting to believe in something because there was always a factor and trigger to make things happen or for any changes, for any oppression or whatever like phenomena that human civilization has been creating so far has been always somehow linked to this drive of wanting to believe in something. The conflict basically kind of comes from the moment where the reconciliation or like negotiation doesn't work, right? And then there comes the clash, conflict and killings and whatever, wars and so on. Because especially in this era, the entire technology is becoming less and less graspable for individuals because it's mainly developed through the guidance of governments or like global conglomerates and they have this ultimate force to drive things faster and farther while it gets less and less accessible for us. It's, it's hard to understand what's happening. It's hard to know the, the system below the entire surface, how and why it works in a certain way and who designs this uh, modes of working with technology and anyhow that's fully connected to this entire idea of capitalist escalation and acceleration and all these killings and death happen among these circumstances it was just not not explicable for me and it was not logical that things like this happen for me so I was trying to somehow rediscover this desire where all that urge comes from to pursue something to chase uh, money and to be governed by finances and to develop by the force of monetary interests, etc. Et All that has somehow linkage to this very, very archaic desire for continuation or survival and claiming that my asset is all here, it belongs to me and I belong to here while this other part of things could be mine eventually or maybe not but maybe I should fight for it and all this maybe drive from maybe one core desire that was my hypothesis making this narrative structure i think you're very right when you describe i have no nostalgic projection to any of it because it's totally true and i tend not to think too much about the past like in my personal things or whatever in the history but it's more like a resource to project onto the present to understand things better as a first step before even I proceed to the future. Sometimes I feel so stuck in the present. Of course, this continuation of the present leads me at some point to a future, but then I need to know where I'm at and what it, this means and why this happens. So probably that's how it all came together, but not as a pure interest or like pure intention of cherishing it, the whole tradition or like the whole faith or mythologies, but it's more, I would say, a practice to facilitate myself to understand things better in the present. Probably I was used to think through this framework of known religions to me in the first place. I'm equally ignorant to both sides. I'm not fully Christian, I'm not fully Buddhist. I'm not very sophisticated in Taoism, but I know like a little bit here there as an Asian person, let's say, that who grew up in a highly developed society that is towards the West development. So all this experience of being anchored like slightly to very different sides of the religious traditions made me think I can access all these iconologies in the first place as an image material and also like architectural setup for my installation. They could be a very rich resources and it was always helpful to structure my working faces such as making the narrative, borrowing the languages or some style of writing or also this um, fictive setup as a narrator, the tone of writing, etc. I was somehow trying to mimic certain references in a way, but also in a very physical sense, let's say religious architecture in every side of different region in the world, they always make things physically visible to communicate better about this metaphysical world that each religion wants to explain. So every religion has this very pragmatic side of like governing people and like somehow giving harmony to each individual mind, etc. But at the same time, they have to explain these highly, highly abstract ideas of dimensions 
that is translated into this physical space so that people can enter and there's a certain narrative that you have to enter the first gate and there comes the next gate and passing through each gate you have to let things down and get more purified and get ready to finally confront the main Buddha who is overlooking this pagan world and etc. That part of knowledge is always super intriguing to approach and I kind of have pure fun to reappropriate it in a way that somehow overlaps to this current reality that I want to deal with while I'm making certain narrative structure and that's always my fun side of the work at the same time it's not fully like studious it's not it's not a research in a real sense but it's more like playing with lego blocks also not necessarily to be fully understood because it's maybe less relevant in compared to this entire message that I want to deliver through this structure When you are asking why are they so like calm or they give some serenity maybe in the process of unfolding the stories. I think I cannot really fully explain that effect because I never really deeply thought of like considered myself of making a quiet work. Maybe it's more about funding because I never had like fully abundant funding in the way that I can like just go really gorgeously shot like professional shooting shots or whatsoever. I have to be inventive to solve certain limitation in my realization of creativity. Actually, I never over design anything. So I tend to be quick choosing material where to put in this specific structure that I firstly set up. I'm a very structural person in a way. Like That's also how I deal with my stress because I cannot hire anybody, there's no budget. So I have to all do by myself. So it means I have to be clear. So the structure is all there. And what I fill up this structure with is more about like what is accessible right now. That could be some very, very clearly already defined blocks from the past, which is also kind of an archaeologist act, maybe, as you described, that I go back to quickly grab this block and from this other side, maybe they put together, they create something else. And that's always this exciting part of the work. So I've been always proceeding like that, but I have to be, at least for myself, clear why I chose this in this specific context, because I have to be able to explain to myself, this means this and this serves for this. And they, they come together out of this reason. And that's always defined, but the result looks rather kind of random or like they give certain sense of freedom for me that they even could be put together or something like that. There is something universal that I want to pursue also because from the experience being always in between somewhere and more and more I've noticed I cannot urge people to understand what I'm showing just out of the urgency of the message, you know? I could say about this very problematic issue in South Korea, but nobody's interested in here. And it's too specific, maybe. So I have to find the grounds where all that comes from to find a certain commonness that we can communicate through. And be from Asian side or the Western side, let's say, there should be something that we can still communicate with each other through which things could be maybe understood better. And then maybe we could accept each other more or something like that. It's one of my favorite questions because I do very clear-cut open calls for performers, but I always announce they should somehow be able to identify themselves as a type of minority by self-definition, because it's a matter of distribution. Berlin has, has such a rich pool of all these independent creatives 
who are eager to do something together and they have no money. And of course there are many celebrities too, but then I don't want to, I don't need them even in my project. They have enough to do and they're not affordable. So I invite always these people who are like very excited to be part of something that I suggest. And I want to give the funding to them and not to these people who are stable enough, let's say. But it doesn't mean that it's like a clear, necessary definition, but somehow it ended up becoming like that. They were always like me, somehow. And then I always boast I'm a good casting person. <laughs> I somehow just follow my impressions and their very brief introductions and it's all online. I cast by email and then I finally meet people when they're confirmed, let's say. Mostly they are always much, much richer presences. Whenever I put my camera in front of them and it's just me, my camera and them, like no matter how many they are, sometimes it's just one person. My maximum number was um, seven, eight. And it depends on the budgeting. And so the more people you see, it means there are more money flowing in. Or like the installation was less demanding. So I put more money to the people whatsoever. So it's, you can count them and see like what the budget was. Compared to my investition, I want to pay them well, so they're never underpaid. And that's, that's a very important criteria for me, like working in a correct way. Because I felt very, very often exploited working in the art field. And I don't want to reproduce this system. It's like very, very, one of my beliefs that I want to stick to. But still, it's not a big, big money. You know, you, you cannot give them a fortune. It's just not there. But for the investition, they always return me like such a huge huge richness because they are also vivid living creatures and they have their own interpretation. I give them very basic scripts, a few lines to be told in different ways and I give just basics and then they do what they want to do. I fully fully give myself to promise them their freedom to that. That's also the fun part of the job and at least there's my role to secure them. They can rely on me at this moment and they can trust me. There's a certain relationship in a temporary sense. Maybe we become friends or like we have long-term contacts, but most of them appear in my life and they disappear again in different locations. Out of regular reason, it was a job, right? I am not urging them to invest more time and efforts for me. So most of the time it ends there, for which I also never like paid even more efforts to somehow cultivate out of this experience of being together to something else. Sometimes I'm lucky and it, I want a friend or a colleague or an ally. Sometimes they continue in their own directions or they disappear. I've been always very lucky. I never fail to have wrong person. I always become a fan of them while editing the material because it's just so beautiful what they gave to me and it's always about this moment of generosity. Maybe it's this moment of temporary togetherness that why I'm making this. And it's such a fundamental part of the process. And I know it's temporary, like any exhibition, like any process, but it has to be truthful enough so that we can go back home with good feelings about each other, about myself and about the world that we created together. And that's something that I have to promise them when I invite any physical body to be part of my project. And that's the most expensive part and it's the most valuable part at the same time in non-monetary sense also. So I'm always a little bit dealing with this dilemma of this unreciprocal calculation of monetary value because what I pay for them is never enough. I cannot never fully compensate them. They would come along for a drink, they will invite me to their community to get introduced to their activist crew. Many of them were also very like socially engaged, so they revealed fundamental part of their interests or activities, which I never have access directly otherwise, right? So it's also many lucky moments of learning and appreciation. And it's just so encouraging because otherwise I have never chanced so such a like, have enjoyed this direct way of self-confirmation that they agree to be part of this because they also want to believe in that apart from this monetary compensation. Of course, for some, it's like more urgent to have this money. Of course, it's maybe like less interesting to talk about other things and they don't are not into art or whatsoever. But then it's a nice event, right? Like for them to, even though they're maybe not regularly in this field or any creative job or a professional dancer or whatsoever. So that's the contingency part that is super rich, actually. No matter what I prepare, it always, always much more than I expected in a good sense.
Most of them, they've been dancers. That's certain reason because I didn't want to have any like real theatrical acting and not too trained acting, but at least somehow know what they're doing with their body. So this consciousness of certain expressive presence. So for that, for me, it was always the best to have dancers from this specific role to play. But while it was never a dance dance move at all, so maybe for them it was less fulfilling experience because they couldn't boast of their talents or whatsoever. But otherwise it was more about having their embodiment of their personal histories because when they are not dancers, still there is something like, you know, in their lives and they arrived here to meet me because they have become that what they are, right? Technically, most of them were dancers. In other parts, they were like activists or like cooks or just friends at the beginning. That was tricky sometimes, so I decided to go more and more to this open call system through friends and through allies and not just open, open call, but more like in a closed circuit. My videos are not cinematic at all, not standing alone. Sometimes just watching them as single channel on a monitor is very limiting because they're not perfect ever, like they're not meant to be standing alone. And I like these different imperfections gathering in a temporary setup to be creating something together. Practically how I start is just because I'm making installation and not objects and not sculptures or like cinematic work. It means I need a space that is forgiven. It's always a space that I will occupy in a way. And usually they have the plan and I sketch from there. And also I know the range of basic elements. Like I want to create maybe two channel or single channel accompanied with these scopes of material presences or like the biggest structural definition of it, what to put in there in the first place. And then from there I start gathering blocks, let's say, and there's always some focal message that I want to deliver that occupies me at the current moment. And I take always notes in my mobile phone, some impressions from the environment or like some fleeting thoughts or like some lines that I read in the public space or some articles from the news, whatever. And then I reread them to kind of start drafting things. Sometimes they become narrative, sometimes they are more like a song or poems. It's a way of writing that is less about delivering a very clear structure of narrative, but it's more like some flashes for thoughts that somehow flows with a beginning in the end because a video is a package in the end and it has a start in the end. It's not a parametric, automatized, algorithmic, like moving image. It's a filmic structure, let's say, in a traditional sense, but somehow playing in a meta layer of it. When I was studying video in Berlin, I was always like bounced by this idea, is, is video a failed film? And I finally, luckily had the answer for myself, actually it's not, it's something for its own. But for me, it's important that video as non-film has something to be critical about itself. It's always having this incorporating meta layer of time-based media or moving image, etc allows me much more freedom how to work with it. It's as a very, very fluid media. I was a little bit frustrated in this curriculum because it's very classical in a way. It's very classical media based like theories and also like this 
very filmic technical workshops which was helpful all that but also like to advertisement and to the commercial side so it's all about something that i don't want to do with it you know it's a side story but i ended up not making my own video but i made a collage of youtube clips for my master degree shows it was a challenge to kind of rebel against what they were like trying to input me and somehow it worked out so i was somehow gaining the my self-recognition okay this can work it's about how you structure it what you want to deliver with this but it's not about the pristine image of this uh, lingering projection or whatsoever only after that i decided to shoot really something so i only made scripting and shooting with camera only after my art school ended there was also new experience but anyhow coming back to structuring the installation Given this basic structure, what I want to somehow build up things, and I have this also very basic script, then it kind of gives way to some visual objects that could be in the video and also in the outside of the video. I work a lot digitally. When you digitally model something in 3D, that means it could be printed out as a physical object, that which is like kind of more consumer level industry by now and, and you can access it if you have the equipment you can pay some money in some workshop and then you can quickly print it etc or if it stays digital in this virtual space then you can make a timeline and make it move and that becomes an animation it's a moving image and you can insert it into your video that actually I shot with some other people of some landscape and there are like different layers of dimensions layered to each other I like layering a lot so there are many layers in my video, there are doubling layers or like independent layers outside of the video and maybe sometimes there are multi-channels. I work less and less with multi-channel because I got more conscious about electricity consume level. So maybe I will continue making mostly single channel, I don't know yet. In so-called media genre, it was a challenge to always be early enough to adapt to these new possibilities through technology. And there was a kind of a must as a media artist to test it, to be inventive, to use it and suggest new ways of using it. Still, it's ongoing, but I have this strong reluctance by now, especially after the pandemic, that I cannot use it, approach it anymore like that. I have to have very good reasons if I ever need it. And mostly it requires huge fundings and bigger companies sponsoring it or just the industry behind it. But what is there a reason for an artist to be like the frontier of this advertisement in a way, you know, like to make a better image of the entire possibilities? Because there are like purposes when something develops in technology, there are specific directions guided by whom and who, which money is behind it, etc. And how is it biased? As a taste, I was never into high-level, top-notch productions. Like, maybe in my whole life, I was always into something quick, something transient, something mundane, like something close to me. Even, like, after the pandemic, after spending so many hours with, on screen, like, with your phone, with your monitors, we were all having this collective, collective in the sense of amount of number, collective totalitarian experience, which in our era never happened before. It was all like fully global in the sense, right? It was never a lesson that we entirely simultaneously learned through. And then one of the results from this experience in our moving image perception is that we are less patient. Definitely, probably it's gonna influence my editing style because I am also less patient. I don't want to urge my viewers to be be different and sit here longer, you know, in front of my mirror. I never want to be that type of artist that there's something special going on, so you have to sit here, you know. As an artist, I have to be providing this possibility as an attraction, let's say, to capture their interest with some elements that they can relate to, and that's 
one of the fun factors and that's also very narrative effect. So I think narrative always works in a way because it's such an archaic medium. We always make out stories out of nothing and it's kind of an old, old habit. So it's never going to dissipate, I think, in any medium, in any virtual dimension. We are so into it. It's one of the easiest entrants, but it always works with rhythms, with imageries, with colors and sound and environment. The whole entire thing is sometimes in the past I was saying that my videos are have to work like a time machine because it's something delivering from the past. It already happened. It was a shooting. It was a performance. And it went through a process of post-production and editing and adding up layers. And it's here. So it's delivering something not not from here, but maybe it's from the past, maybe from the future, or in a parallel reality. It's a package, it's given to you, so you have to somehow make the next moves, you know? But then for you, it's all given here, so maybe you can find something interesting for you. That's basically, let's say, my work moral, in a way. That's my job, to provide all that. To that point, I have to be serious enough to make things interesting enough, or to be engaged enough to invite people to spend time there because I know that's one of the basic participation in an art exhibition. And I always get very reluctant when there's something that I have to wear or like I have to take off my shoes or like I have to like push some button. I never participate in the sense unless I'm dying to do that. But it's barely happening. It's very hard to engage people. And what are you to urge people to be part of your creation? There is something about hierarchy, so I don't want to be that, recreating that sense of hierarchy. So it should be a place spread there, just given and just you're facing, entering the space, so you decide, but at least I prepared this dish for you, so maybe it's tasty for you. I have this wishful hope that we could connect, but maybe it's not working. If a work is strong enough, it already teaches you something, it leaves something behind in your living steps. In many, let's say, exhibitions as archival approach or like exhibition with books or of knowledge or information, something more educative that is more like informative, they usually fail because they don't capture you and like it has to be activate very engaged way of learning somehow it's destined to fail in the format of exhibition because I think the expectation is different when you enter the exhibition space so you want to meet something it's more about this physical encounter and this entire perception of surrounding and body and what's in front of you or like surrounding you or like immersive or not but putting a book on the table it's not never enough it's not an exhibition right it's like kind of boasting oh I read so many books I did so much research It happens also very often in academic fields that you use knowledge for your consolidating your own positioning and hierarchy. It's never helpful because the knowledge is not given there for like to politicize your position, right? It's useless, like that knowledge is not ethical, you know? This way of using it and approaching it as a weapon to, to get little of others, you know? It's not the ultimate purpose for this knowledge, so it kind of degrades the knowledge itself. But it's also a very typical phenomenon, so that's why I also kind of was always trying to detach a little bit from that sphere of interest. Also because I studied art theory in my first art school visit. So I was majoring in art theory and I was minoring in visual art. That's how it all started. But I never pictured myself being a theoretician. I, it was never my goal. So that's why I started my bubble major or like the minor in visual art. And there was a challenge because it was very progressive young art school back then. It's a national one, but still it was very young. 
entering the other department classes was also technically a challenge because they wouldn't make the spots free for me. Like entering as my registered identification uh, as student, I cannot even access the button, you know, it's gray. So I have to knock the door at the offices and like, please make these and these and these courses available for me because I'm officially having this minor position in this other department that I don't belong to. Also this experience, probably from the beginning of my development as an artist and consciousness within it, was very influenced by this experience of not belonging to fully somewhere or like having certain distance to access this experience and knowledge. How I want to use it to be adhering to my own like self-recognition or like self-definition. That's how it all started. Otherwise I wouldn't have been interested, I think, if it was more about Zhang, about this mastery of dominating this skill or like, you know, having reaching the most fine level of artistry or whatsoever, I was never capable to do that. Actually, I never thought so consciously about light in my projects, but then I ended up mobilizing this effect more and more, covering the windows to tint the daylight into the space in other colors that also affects the perception of video image. They layer also in a way in the airy sense, or like I have like this flickering moments in the video and also like in the real space, my work for Gwangju Biennale was having this specifically timed mobile phone flashes that scintillate in a certain rhythm and they echo what's happening in the video because Gwangju, actually the city of democratic movement in the 80s, there was a massacre by the dictatorship. There was a huge tragic history behind it. But anyhow, Gwangju itself, literally it means the region of light. Gwang means uh, light. So I was also a little bit inspired by that because it was my response to this invitation to be part of Gwangju. As a Korean artist, of course, it's some different sense of participation. It was very, very significant moment. So responding to that, I projected this element of life, not as this highlight or like torchlight as typically depicting this struggle moment in traditional activist art or something, but it's like something that is very rather faint, rather individual, something daily that everyone has already. I was doing some biotechnology readings and then I found this one research that was about this mitochondria when it has this cell suicide emits light and the more light you may emit you are getting older quicker eventually you'll die right it's kind of a, like a burning that makes that consumes the oxidants so the entire cell gets more activated but at the same time you consume something so you get older to die so it kind of matched my perspective of the develop of the world that we are going through a long, long, like prolonged demise, a long end of all of us. It looks like it's not reversible. It's somehow predicted, so we have to know how we die well, in a way. It's a condition of life anyway. Physically, we have all lights twinkling in our bodies. In every cell, there is a certain light factor. And it means even though we approach quicker the death, but at the same time, we change all the time. We, we constantly change. And any sense of change is positive. I decided to think, let's say aging, whatever, I'm different from one moment to the next. And it promises something, right? I could be something that I've never been. I will get older and I will die. And that's a very organic set of idea that accompanies me when I think of life. I always end up thinking about death. But then I experience very often, especially in Berlin or even like among my Berlin colleagues, if I make projects about like touching this idea of death, then they will find it too morbid or like to, oh, why would you put it on the table? Why are you embellishing the death? Which was not my purpose, but they couldn't have other way of reading it in other ways because it's so much like a taboo in the Western culture to talk about death. It's never something pleasant. It's never something that you want to talk about, like poverty, for example, or death, etc. So I had some projects that I was specifically addressing that, like very intentionally, but also like to 
to liberate myself from this ultimate pressure of having to prove something. It's all about this productivity and competition that you have to be a good product to be highlighted again and to continue to get to the next step and to want making things. You have to get the chances, and but you have to be seen. And it's all about this visibility has always something with light. And also even like in my medium, which is video making, which comes photography historically. And also even in the virtual space, I was mentioning the process of 3D modeling. You model something in gray, basic graphic setup, and then when you render this, you don't see it because you didn't set up a lighting in that virtual space. So if you want to see all these angles and forms and volumes, you have to set up types of light. You want to light this in this black hole, which is the virtual space. So you always need a light to make things visible. If I think of light, it always goes back to this moment when I, in a sunny day outside, under the sunlight, when, I, when you close your eyes, you still see things. It's like this reddish, thin layer of skin that covers your pupils, and then you still see this light coming through. Or when you wake up and there's some light in your mind that you've been dreaming, and then I have some scenes in my video that I kind of reenacted some scenes from my dreaming, which doesn't happen very much, but then it was a very specific moment of like, some light passing by outside of the window, like a spaceship or something, like very slowly passing by outside light in the dark, when I'm inside and looking out in the window, etc. I don't know, maybe my kinship to this medium of video and photography probably like related to it as a starting point of moving image making. It's fundamental to keep this ground of light and shadow and thinking about this light as a metaphor for change of something that has, is already innate to us physically and also not being absorbed by all this powerful, massive, guided light, but something that comes from you. And we, maybe we gather this and something happens out, out of this being together. Light probably occupies that part of thoughts in my work. I just enjoy a lot like having this light movement happening in the work in many different levels. Well, I have to say, Seoul is a megalopolis and it's a hyper-urban environment. Almost one-third of South Korean population is concentrated there. It means everyone is in these high-rises because it compresses the volume of people's presence and they're all the time working and learning. It's not an environment very friendly to spend time outside. People crave for it, of course. There are like some little green parts in the city. They're trying to somehow improve it, but then it's not very easy because it's so limited by now, like the space. Before I left there, I was not conscious so much about like getting light on my skin. And as you know, also like this aesthetical preference in the society, you prefer having lighter skin color. Koreans are genetically also quite light, I would say. It's quite, quite northern than other parts of Asia, let's say, like in the forest. So they are anyhow like relatively light toned, but then they want to keep it. So they wouldn't spend too long time outside, let's say, unless you are traveling or like having some holidays. After my arrival in April 2005, the first summer I clearly remember because it was so impressive to see how long my shadows gets cast on the street side around nine. The sun is still there and it's like stretching over two blocks or something. And there was very weird moment to perceive because I never seen such a thing. And then only recently I realized that Seoul is actually at the height of Palermo. So it's quite Southern in the sense compared to Berlin. So I noticed finally how oblique the angle of the sun is, which makes it probably weaker compared to maybe like Barcelona or like Seoul. The sun is more intense to, than in Berlin, I would say. And I also experienced because I was running in Seoul this May when I was visiting last time. And I got so tanned so quickly because probably I was spending a whole hour like crossing the bridges and walking and running along the riverside with no shadow. 
really is different type of ray of sunlight that you get on your skin. That's quite a difference. And so for me, German light or like the light in Berlin is always this first summer light that is super golden, very oblique, has something very romantic. Maybe just like mingle with my first summer experience in Berlin. Because when I was learning German before coming to Germany in Gretchen to Seoul, for like one and a half years, I was preparing to study in Germany. So I went there regularly, but then like there was a chapter about the climate, of course. And then my teacher was telling the episodes, yeah, Germans, when the summer, the summer is very brief. So when it comes, they get all naked and then spend time, hours in the park and you'll see them. And I was like, no, come on, that's an exaggeration. But then I saw them doing it and it was actually happening. And the next summer I was feeling like doing it after the long, long, dark winter. I always draft in bilingual way, in English and Korean. Even from writing process, I always write side by side and think of the translation. They're never translatable, so I rewrite them in different ways. It was a condition that I accepted since I just started making videos from Berlin because then I started exporting them to Korea, so it had to be like that from the beginning. So I ended up drafting from the beginning together because when I do it later on for subtitling, then it, it feels so awkward and I lost the sensitivity and it just sounds just weird like to be saying that in this way, you know? So I have to be more grounded and focused for drafting in both languages from the beginning. That's a big factor, yes. And then of course I give form. First of all, they have to be readable, so it has to be most functional, but at the same time, somehow I perceive them as a visual element so that I give them a slight sense of design and placement. I play with them a little bit, but not too much, like many other factors in the image that are never overly done. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hdk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Cesar. Music S. McAvoy. Research Team Tabea Rothfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.